0: Well, if you have a Bible, I'll invite you to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 6 through 8 this morning, 2 Timothy 4, verses 6 through 8. And if you're able to do so, I'll invite you to stand for the reading of God's word today. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8, give ear to the word of God. Paul says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Isaiah 40 verses 7 through 8 says the grass withers, the flower fades, the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the the people are grass. And then it says the, the grass withers. The flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray and ask God's blessing upon his word to us today. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your holy word. We ask once again that you might be pleased in your kindness and mercy to us to teach us your word, fill us with your spirit, give us understanding into it. Uh, give me grace to, to speak in such a way that is uh, true to everything in your word and accurate to it and faithful to it. And we ask that you would once again uh, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Great things from your word, for it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, um, we've been going through this epistle for some months now. And uh, in some ways, if you've read 2 Timothy a number of times, or if you're reading it now as we're going through the book and the preaching series through it, um, you probably have picked up on the fact that not just this particular passage in the book, but a lot of 2 Timothy reads kind of like, um, it isn't really this, but it kind of reads as if Paul is passing the torch or the baton to Timothy. His part of the race is done. You know, you, uh, if you ever watch the Olympic games and when they first begin, uh, I don't know how long this takes, but they usually have a group of runners with the torch going through whatever country they're in. You know, they—they they, I don't know how many miles they do this, but uh, and they pass the torch from one to the next to the next to the next all the way until it gets to the location where the games are being held in some way. That's kind of what, what Paul is doing here in this letter and in our text. He's sort of passing the baton or the torch to Timothy in the ministry of the gospel. Now, Timothy can't take on Paul's mantle of, of apostleship. This is not Paul saying, I was an apostle, now it's your turn. Uh, the apostles were a one-time, not-to-be-repeated uh, office in the, in the history of the church. Uh, but Paul's life and ministry in the gospel was coming to a close. He, that's, that takes up most of the rest of this uh, letter. And so what he's doing is he is exhorting Timothy and charging him to press on in the faithful ministry of the word of God and the gospel as he has been called to, just like Paul himself had done and was finishing his own time in that work. And last Sunday, if you were here, we looked at verses 3 through 5, and we saw there, it may seem kind of strange the way Paul puts it to our ears, But Paul gives him a a number of motivations and reasons, incentives for being faithful and preaching the word of God. And of all the ones he gives, the one that we saw last week might sound the most counterintuitive, but he literally tells him, preach the word because or for a time was coming when people would not endure sound doctrine. You you would almost think, that's the time when you stop. If people don't want to hear it, why should I keep doing it you know and Paul says no it's in a sense he's saying there's even more reason to keep on doing it uh, in a lot of ways you know they, they wouldn't endorse sound teaching because he had he calls it itching ears and he tells them they would turn aside from the truth or turn their ears away from the truth and follow after the teachers that would accommodate them in their lusts he says this is something you're going to you know you're going to encounter and you know it's easy for us you know living here in the 21st century to say well this is a new thing to us we look around at the state of the church in general and we say, what happened? You know, Where are all the faithful churches at? Um, why are all these people having itching ears and turning aside? Well, this isn't some new thing. And it, in a weird way, I hope that's encouraging. If Paul saw that in his own day, uh, who are we to think that we should uh, see or experience anything less uh, than that as well? So now we come to verses 6 through 8 where Paul speaks, uh, not in explicit terms, but speaks at some length of his own impending martyrdom and how he had carried on to completion his work in the gospel that he had been sent forth to do by the Lord Jesus on the Damascus Road. And strange as it may seem, just like last week, Paul actually uses his impending martyrdom as another encouragement, another incentive for Timothy to keep on faithful in the work and do what God had called him to do. He is here, even as he's talking about his own death, seeking to spur Timothy on to faithfulness, In the ministry. Uh, Back in verse 5, you might remember, he says to Timothy, As for you, always be sober minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. In other words, regardless of what the people around you are doing, regardless of how many are turning aside from the truth and won't endorse sound doctrine, don't worry about them. You do what you're called to do. As for you, always be sober minded, endure suffering, which even as Paul was doing, uh, and then fulfill his ministry. Now, um, you know, Timothy was to just keep on doing what he was called to do. Now, to do that, he needed to be sober-minded. That's why Paul brings it up. He needed to endure suffering. Uh, Paul could just say, "Look at me. You know, look at my example. He preached the word and he suffered very much for it. He was about to die for it. He was about to be martyred for his faithfulness to the gospel. It would take that. It would take sober-mindedness. It would take enduring of suffering for for Timothy or any faithful pastor in many ways." Uh, to do the work of an evangelist and fulfill his ministry. That's what Paul is is, uh, is trying to steal Timothy uh, to do. And so now we come to verses 6 through 8, and Paul is basically giving Timothy, in some sense you could say he's kind of giving Timothy the context of these admonitions and exhortations to faithfulness in preaching the word. It's as if he was saying this, if I can summarize it in, in a paraphrase. He's sort of saying Timothy, I endured suffering and finished my work. Now you do likewise. He, probably the last thing Timothy may have thought about doing at the moment, thinking of Paul's impending martyrdom, was doing that. But he's saying, no, you, you do the same. Do what you're called to do until God calls you home. Timothy was to fulfill the ministry that God had called him to just as Paul had done. And I think that's the basic uh, gist of what Paul is saying in our text Now, Paul's departure from the harvest fields, the fields of gospel labor, uh, humanly speaking, not divinely speaking, but humanly speaking meant that it was even more important, not less, for Timothy to press on and put his hands to the plow and not look back. Uh, Matthew Henry, the great Puritan Bible commentator, puts it this way. He says, when laborers are removed out of the vineyard, it is no time for those to uh, for those to loiter. That are left behind, but to double their diligence, the fewer hands there are to work, the more industrious those hands must be that are at work. You know, I, I, you think of the, it must have been discouraging for Timothy to even think about Paul being treated the way he was about to be. He was in prison when he wrote this letter, but to think of him being executed by by the Romans uh, for nothing other than preaching the gospel must have been a very great discouragement. To him, and yet Paul's words, I think I think Matthew Henry is, is correct here. He's telling him, you know, you pick up the slack. This this is no time to waste, no time to, to loiter around. To use Henry's words, uh, but to put your hand to the plow and get get to work. Now sometimes maybe you think this way too. I think the Lord sometimes has blessed us throughout the history of the church, and even in our own day, in many ways, with some exceptionally gifted men of God, those who do a lot of the so-called heavy lifting in the ministry and in standing for the truth. Uh, they are the, uh, we talk about people being the, the tip of the spear, so to speak. Uh, we have seen many of those and many of those are the ones that take all the brunt of, of the world's attacks. Uh, and such ministers are often a great blessing, not just to their own churches, but to other churches as well. You know, I, I, I am tempted to name off a bunch of names that maybe some of you would even be familiar with. But, um, you know, in my own time, uh, not that he would remember me if he were here, but James Boyce, people like R.C. Sproul, uh, G.I. Packer, people that God has used in ways we probably can't even count, and God has removed them from the mission field. Their time is done. Um, I I would add, although many would not, I would add John MacArthur to that list. He's still with us, Um, and in many ways, he has been a great blessing, I believe, to the church. Um, We have some small disagreements in doctrine over things, but not the the main things. Um, But we can sometimes, those of us who are, Lesser lesser men, you know, kind of look at them and go, well, they're the ones, you know, let them take care of it. You know, God's gifted these whoever you're thinking of. Maybe it's a different list than mine. You know, God has raised these guys up; they're the ones that can handle it. And then at some point, you know, God removes them. I still remember hearing of Dr. Boyce uh, being called home by the Lord at I think a very young age. Uh, I was I was thinking he'd be around much longer. I was shocked. I was I was disappointed and distressed. And uh, but you know, the, he's home, and the Lord is still having his church, his work go on. Um, but you know, when the time comes, like Paul, when these folks finish their race and are called home by the Lord, um, it's then that the others must step into the gap. Even people, you know, Timothy. I'm guessing as a young man, a relatively young man in the ministry, probably did not think for a minute that he was equipped to do that. He probably thought, there's got to be somebody else. And there. And Paul said, no, no, it's you. This is where God has, has put you and, and carry on uh, your, your work. And you think about throughout the history in the scriptures, you think about examples like Elijah. Remember, Elijah was taken off in the chari- chariots of fire and the, the whirlwind, and, and Elisha thought it was the end of the world. But what did Elijah do? He gave him his mantle. And he literally took up the mantle. We get that phrase, taking up the mantle, from that, from that story. You think of Moses, you know, in many ways, the greatest figure in the Old Testament. And poor Joshua. You know, Joshua gets to take up the baton and go. And, and you read the first chapter of Joshua, and you see God encouraging him, I will be with you, you know, wherever you go. You know, it's like, as I was with Moses, so I'll be with you. That kind of a thing. The point isn't the people. The point is the Lord, who's sovereign in the work of of his church in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, and today, as well, the work has to go on, and God, God has chosen in His wisdom to use uh, people. God could do much better without us, uh, but God has chosen chosen to use uh, men and women in His in His work in many ways. Um, so this morning, what I'd like us to do is take a brief look at Paul's words regarding his life, ministry, and especially his what he calls his departure from this life in verse six. I think there's a great deal that uh, every believer, not just those who are in some kind of formal ministry, uh, should learn from Paul's words here in our text. Uh, Think about these questions as we go through this passage and others. How are you and I who believe to view our lives? If you're a Christian, how do you view your life? What do you think of your life in general? How do you view your service unto the Lord Jesus in your generation, whatever that service may be? Uh, How are you serving God and, and how are you to view that? in light of, of God one day calling you home. And lastly, but how is our home going? Uh, what are we to think of that? What are we to think of, of, of the end of our lives when God comes, when the Lord Jesus comes or calls us home? Uh, I don't know. Maybe do you ever give that much thought? These are things we tend to kind of put off. and Even Christians, I think, put these things off and don't like to think about them. Um, they don't, we don't give them the thought that we probably should. So I, I hope this morning we'll, at least in a small measure, kind of correct that oversight a bit together as we look at this brief text. So the, I want to look at Paul's, Paul's martyrdom in a, in a few ways, the ways that he brings up in the text. And the first thing that Paul brings up and mentions, the first way he describes his, his martyrdom, his death for the Lord, is that it was an offering. It was an offering unto the Lord. Um, he speaks of his martyrdom. He doesn't use that word. He doesn't even use the word death in our, in our text Um, But it's pretty clear that's what he has in mind when he talks about departing and things. Um, There's no doubt that Timothy knew exactly what Paul was getting at when he used the words that he did. Now, you and I might be tempted, I think, maybe you thought this when I was reading the text. We might be tempted to think that Paul's words here were a kind of um, like a euphemism. Like Paul's just trying to be, you know, soften the blow by calling it something else That's not what Paul's doing, I don't think. I don't think Paul is using it as a euphemism. I think if his intent were to go into some kind of detail about how he was going to die, you know, being executed by the Roman government and the manner of it, uh, he could have gone into that, but that wasn't his point. Uh, Timothy was well aware, I think, of those things. But he wasn't employing just figures of speech. I don't think he's being euphemistic here at all. I think what he's doing is he's giving Timothy and us, the right perspective on his dying day and our own. Notice he makes no mention of the manner of his death, again, or the violent nature of it. Um, Church tradition, if you're not aware, holds that uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul, was beheaded under the persecution that occurred in Rome under Caesar Nero. And so you know Paul sealed his testimony with his blood. If you ever read and never get a chance to read Fox's Book of Martyrs, I highly encourage you to read it. Um, it sounds like an awful book, from the title. It's, it's, it is a book that is just what it sounds like, as far as the basic you know, information in, involved in it. Um, I read that book years ago, and I was weirdly, you know, strangely encouraged by it. Like, because it's, it's not just a record of a bunch of guys preaching the gospel and being killed for it. It's the record of them, you know, being faithful in their testimony to Christ, and God's faithfulness to raise up more after they're gone. Uh, God is at work, and, and, and even their martyrdom, being faithful unto death, is something that none of us are capable of. On our own, you, you know, you read those stories, you go, boy, I, I couldn't do that. I can barely take it when somebody makes fun of me. Um, it's it's only God that can do that and work that in someone. But if you've never read that book, I highly encourage you to do so. Um, but notice the ways that Paul does describe his, in, his impending death. Uh, because I think this is meant to be instructive to Timothy and to us first, he speaks of it as an offering or sacrifice to God. Look again at verse 6. He says, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has, has come. Um, this wasn't the first or only time that Paul has used that kind of language about his own, uh, his own death. Philippians chapter 2, verses 17 to 18, he says this, uh, also from prison, by the way. He says, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. That's counterintuitive, isn't it? We we get mad if somebody prays and thanks God for weeds, right, Bob? Paul's like, hey, if I seal my testimony with my blood, rejoice with me and I with you. Like God is still good and God is going to use it in some way. But he, he described the possibility of his martyrdom as being poured out as a drink offering. No doubt that has something to do with the, the spilling of his own blood in his, in his death. But um, drink offerings, maybe that's something you're not very familiar with. Uh, I don't think it's something that comes to my mind very often. But drink offerings of wine and grain offerings were often made uh, part of the Old Testament sacrifices of burnt offerings and other things that were made at the tabernacle and the temple. Uh, These are things that accompanied the the main sacrifices, so to speak, the ones that were done for atonement. They were often accompanied with drink offerings and grain offerings. If you want to read more on that, I'll leave it to your own homework this afternoon. Read Numbers chapter 15, and it goes into a lot of detail about that. But no doubt Paul had that in view when he said these words uh, here to Timothy, but Paul viewed his death as a sacrifice, not of, atone, of, atoning kind, of an atoning kind, but as a sacrifice and an offering unto God. His sufferings and especially the shedding of his blood and death and martyrdom was what he calls a drink offering to God. Now, again, he's not talking about it as if it atoned for anything. He's not earning anything. It's not making up for his own sins. Only Christ's sacrifice once for all did that. Um, but it was simply an offering given to God. Uh, as a grateful sacrifice for his mercy in his life. That's, that's how Paul, sitting in a jail cell, knowing it was coming soon, that's how he viewed his impending uh, martyrdom. He wasn't a helpless victim. His death was not meaningless. He would join the company of the prophets in the Old Testament and the apostles in the New, who sealed their testimony literally uh, with their blood. You know, I, I don't say this very often, but. It, you, know, I, I, I get, I, you might get annoyed when your pastor a oh, pastor. In the Greek it says this. But the Greek word for testimony is literally the word we get martyr from. There must be a reason for that. They are that close. It's the same word. That's how closely related those things are. We basically, uh, you know, so in other words, a martyr isn't just somebody who dies. A martyr is somebody who they're giving testimony, even to the point of death, for the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, Tertullian, one of the early church fathers, second century church father, is quoted as saying, maybe you've heard this before, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. That's a weird way to put it. But what's he saying? He's saying everywhere persecution happens, even violent persecution, the kind that we don't want to be anywhere near when it happens. What tends to happen? What does God tend to do sovereignly by his grace and power and mercy when that happens? He makes the gospel expand. If you've never read the book of Acts and thought about it in that light, I encourage you to read the book of Acts again. The book of Acts, maybe that might have been where Tertullian got the idea from because it certainly is what Acts is all about. When you see, in fact, Paul himself, his conversion happened in the midst of a persecution that had broken out in Jerusalem. Remember what, when, when and where was Paul converted and what was he doing when he was converted on the Damascus Road? He had papers in hand going to Damascus to arrest Christians to bring them back to face trial and execution. Paul wanted the church stamped out and Jesus stepped in as he seems to do. And in fact, in the, in the writing in the book of Acts, when it talks about, I'm paraphrasing, uh, but when it talks about the the believers being scattered because of the persecution, leaving, leaving their homes, fleeing for their lives, it says everywhere they went, they took the word of God with them. And so, You know, when when the devil scattered them, he scattered the messengers, too. And all it did was make the message go further and further throughout the ancient world. Now, you you and I may never be called to lay down our lives for the sake of the name of Jesus Christ. Um, We don't know. Uh, I recall uh, years and many, many moons ago when I was first looking into going to Bible college and uh, when my college used to be called Christian Heritage College and they had a visit day, I don't think he'll ever see this, so I'll say his name and embarrass him. Not embarrassing him. It's embarrassing to me. But uh, one of the Bible professors there, uh, Dr. Chuck Emmert, I, I, of course, I wanted to be a Bible major, so I went to his classes and, and sat in on one. He was giving a quiz that day, which I was like, oh, no. You know? <laughs> but I remember him. I think maybe he did this because he saw he had a visitor in the class or a visitor or two, but he had a little twinkle in his eye, and he had, was very active in the behind the lectern and I I forget the text, I forget the point, sorry, Uh, but he leaned across the the podium or the pulpit with a a devilish grin on his face, and he said, who knows, maybe one of us or some of us here might get to die for the Lord, and he smiled really big and waited for the response, and I was like, what kind of Bible college? (laughs) Maybe I want to go somewhere else. I'm going to go check out Biola instead, but I ended up going there, but I, I thought that was the weirdest thing I ever heard, and he was smiling the whole way through it. Um, you know, probably again for for some effect, but uh, I, st- I, st- I still went there. But um, you know, you and I may never be called to c- to lay down our lives for the for the Lord. Um, but you know, the, the New Testament also uses sacrificial language, not just to refer to the death of believers, but also to refer to our lives, your day-to-day life. Uh, some of these passages you're probably very familiar with. I'll just give you one, uh, but it's it's more than just one time in Scripture. Romans chapter 12 verses 1 and 2. Paul says, writing to the church at Rome, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as what? As a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So our daily lives are to be presented to God as a living sacrifice. Not the kind you put on the altar and kill, but one that goes on and on. We are to live for God and in some ways see that uh, as offering our bodies, our whole lives as a sacrifice and offering to God. So what does that look like? It looks like using our bodies in a way that is pleasing to God, walking in holiness in, in the Lord, in obedience to his law, his revealed will, that is a sacrifice unto God that is well-pleasing in his sight. And so I'll ask this morning, are you living that way? Do you view your life, not just your future death, whenever that may be, do you view your life right now as an offering to God, something you offer to God in gratitude for the mercies, as Paul puts it, that he has given you and lavished upon you through the death of his son? That's, that's what we are to do. We don't have a temple. We don't have a tabernacle. We don't offer animal sacrifices, thankfully. Um, I didn't learn about doing that in the seminary, thankfully. Um, but that doesn't mean there's not an offering for us to make. The sacrifice of praise the Bible talks about, the sacrifice of how we live. That is how we should view our lives. And are you, are you living in a way that's no different from the world? Are you wasting your life rather than offering it to God? You know, and you know, sometimes people talk big talk about dying for the Lord. I don't know if anybody here has ever done that, but we really can't talk big about dying for the Lord or being willing to die for the Lord Jesus if we're not willing to live for him in the first place. So the first and foremost, no matter how young or how old you may be, view your life as an offering to your Savior. Well, the second way that Paul describes his impending martyrdom in our text was as a departure, verse 6. In other words, to Paul and to every believer in Christ, his death was his homegoing. That's what he thought about when he thought of his martyrdom. It meant that he was leaving his labors behind. It was, he was leaving his sufferings behind. It meant going home to be with his Lord. Paul speaks the same way in Philippians again. Philippians 1 verses 21 to 23, he used almost literally the same word as he does in our text. He says, "For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Uh, if I am to live in the flesh, in order to remain in this life, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which shall I choose, or which, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. And then he says, verse 23, my desire is to depart, basically the same word, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is what? Far better. He's not, he's not doing this and going, well, on this hand, if I stick around longer, you know, and he wasn't lying. Fruitful labor—he'd seen many converts to Christ. He's built up the churches. He sees a lot of good in what he's, God has enabled him to do and, and used him to do. But then he says, "Or I could depart and be with Christ." And he doesn't just go. It's a little, you know, eh, it's a little better. He said, "It's far better." He's hard pressed. He doesn't want to. He doesn't want to not do the work God has called him to do. But when he thought about it, he would. He would much rather go home, and not just leave this life. But to depart and be with Christ, for being with Christ, uh, no, no small thing to say, is far better. So for the believer, even, even for someone like Paul who was being martyred for his faith at some time soon, uh, that, that wasn't the end for him. It was his, it's death for the believer is our, is our home going. It's another way of testifying that this world is not our home. We have many good things in this life. We, we enjoy God has given us many blessings in this life, but ultimately this is not our home. And if there are things in this life, in some ways, as uncomfortable as they are, but things that, that vex you in this life, in this world, there, there are many of them. Rob mentioned a few of them even in this, the scripture reading this morning about the way things are in the world around us. Um, in some ways, you can be thankful even for that in a strange way because it reminds you this isn't your home. We should not be looking for an abiding home. Ultimately speaking, here and now. So I'll ask this morning, do you live like that's true? Are you living as if the world is not your home or are you living in such a way as that your neighbors couldn't tell the difference? Uh, That you're living in the same way as if the world that is now is all that that mattered. Do we live as if we believe that the best things in life are to be found here or in the life to come? Doesn't mean you don't enjoy the good things God gives you here. But which one are we living for? Which one do we think of the most? The Heidelberg Catechism gives us, I think, the right perspective in many ways on the death of believers. It says, question 41, since Christ has died for us, why do we still have to die? You ever think about that? Of all the things that Christ's death spares us from, the guilt of our sin, the penalty of it, all these things, well, how come we don't just keep living? Why do we have to still go through physical death? Um, good question. Answer, our death does not pay the debt of our sins. It's not punitive for a believer. Rather, it puts an end to our sinning and is our entrance into eternal life. In other words, God has turned even our death, whenever that may be, to a blessing. It's still death is a bad thing. But for the believer, the thing has been removed. It is now, it's, It puts an end to our sinning. And is our entrance into eternal life. What a beautiful way of putting that. Uh, for the believer in Christ, death is no in no way the end, but it's our entrance into eternal life. You know, that among other things, no wonder Paul could say it was he desired to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. And I, I can't help but but think, you know, when you think about Paul talking about departing, for the believer all these things are true. But what of the unrepentant and the unbelieving? What of those who have never repented of their sins and turned to Christ by faith. They have a departing too. And it's not the same kind of departing. It's not the kind where Paul could say, I desire to depart and be with Christ, for that's far better. There is a kind of uh, departing in the death of the unbeliever, the unrepentant. It's a fearful thing. The upright shall behold. We, we read in our, in our call to worship this morning, the last, the last verse, verse of, of Psalm 11, verse 7. He says, He loves, he that's God, loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. It's an amazing expression of of the Christian hope. But what of the unrepentant? Not so. All they face is the judgment to come. And so uh, if if there's anybody here who has not repented of their sin and turned to Christ by faith, um, turn to Christ by faith and live. Look to him and live uh, so that when you you depart, it will be a home going and not a, a going unto judgment. Well, the last thing that Paul mentions uh, briefly is he viewed his martyrdom as his finishing the race and having completed the work that God had called him to do. uh, Look, he had finished the course that God had laid out before him, so to speak, or or finished his race. Look again at verses 7 through 8. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me or, or reserved for me. The crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. You know, it's it's a, you know, I know when we have Olympics now, they give medals. Uh, but, you know, in the old days, way before I was born, they would give a, a, a laurel. Like a, it was like a, a leafy crown. That was kind of the thing that they that they won if they won at the games. And so Paul is picturing himself finishing a, a, a race whether it was a marathon or whatever it might be he's he's picturing his life his ministry and even his martyrdom as as the finish line of a race uh, and and his competing in that race and he's saying he's finished it when he talks about the good fight um, that is also probably much the same imagery he's talking about with the race analogy it's not I don't think it's two separate analogies. They both are, are words used within the idea of kind of the Olympic, uh, Olympic games, that sort of a, of a thing. Um, so the, his good fight, his race was something, uh, thinking, of, thinking of it like an Olympic thing. So, you know, Paul was sort of in the biathlon, so to speak, wrestling and racing, uh, racing and wrestling. And so he's finishing up his course. And Paul could say, he could look Timothy in the eye and say that he had done his part by the grace of God he had done what God had called him to do in spreading the gospel like that that is what we don't know that the time of our homecoming home going whatever that may be any of us do really like Paul did Paul kind of knew you know um, but what a thing to be able to say this this should be our goal if you're a believer this should be your goal i want to be able to say at the end of my life i have fought the good fight i have finished the race God has called me to do and i've kept the faith it's not just something for an apostle to do that's something for every – that's a, a blessed testimony. Every believer should strive by God's grace uh, to, to have true of, of them and be able to say. Paul's not being prideful here. He's boasting in the Lord as he always did. If you're a believer in Christ, did you know that God has set out a track or a course for you to run as well? The scripture talks about the Christian life as a race in many, in many different ways. Um, it's not just Paul and not just the apostles and special Christians that have this true of them. He, for example, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 to 10. He doesn't use the, the expression of a race here, but Ephesians 2, 8 and 10, if you've been ever in Awanas or some kind of scripture memorization program, chances are you've memorized Ephesians 2, at least verses 8 and 9, but I always think we should make sure you don't forget verse 10. And here's what Paul says there. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing It is the gift of God, not a result of works that no one may boast. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship, God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So Paul here, there's so much in that text, I won't preach that text right now, but you Paul gives us, in, in short, the Reader's Digest version of how God saves sinners. The only way God saves sinners, by grace alone, through faith alone, not of works, lest any man should boast. But he does add after that, you're not saved by good works in any way. Not your own, at least. You're saved by Christ's good works. But you are saved for them, aren't you, if you're a believer? It's part of why God saved you, not just to show mercy on you, but that you might live in a way... Uh, that's pleasing in his sight afterward and doing good works and being zealous for it. And what does he add there at the end? Those good works that God would have you do, it says those are things which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. His sovereignty extends beyond just your salvation at the beginning, even before the beginning, an election. His, so- his sovereignty even extends to the good works that he calls you to do. He prepared them before you in your path. That you might do them. That's what he says in verse 10. We are not only new creations in Christ so that all things have become new, but we've also been created or you could say recreated in Christ Jesus for good works that we should walk in the things that God has prepared beforehand for us. So one of the things, one of the purposes in God saving you if you're a believer and reconciling you to himself through the death of his son is that you might be a people for good works. Set apart and zealous for good works unto God's glory. And again, God himself laid out that course before you, before he even saved you. He prepared those things for you to do. And the end of the race, what is there? There's a reward. That's the picture. That's the the word picture that Paul is painting here. And what's the medal? It's the reward. It's not a medal, but it's a crown. Look again at verse 8. He says, henceforth, after all this, henceforth, There was laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Now, um, what is the crown of righteousness? I won't say your guess is as good as mine, but it probably is. Uh, Paul doesn't really spell it out, so I don't think we're supposed to speculate. Uh, But is it sinlessness and glory? Is that why they call it righteousness? Is it sharing in the glory of Christ our Savior? Is it the full enjoyment of our salvation? Is it being told by the Lord at the end, well done, good and faithful servant? Probably all the above. It's, It's probably that the fact that he calls it the crown of righteousness, it probably has something to do with the fact that one day in heaven when you're with the Lord, you will enjoy sinless righteousness. You will enjoy in your own person what God has already declared you to be when he justified you in Christ by faith alone. Whatever the case, Paul was looking forward to it. It motivated him in the midst of his sufferings for the name of Christ. And our God is well pleased to reward us in his grace for our sincere, even if imperfect, good works in this life if you are in Christ. If you are in Christ Jesus and saved by his grace alone through faith alone, God is well pleased to not only accept the good works that you do done in faith, but even to reward them, as imperfect as they are. That's grace. It's been said before that in, in doing this, God crowns his own gifts and graces. Like God's the one that worked that in you to begin with. Right? It's it's God who works in you both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. And then what does he do on top of it? He rewards you for it. It's pretty amazing grace that God would do that. Notice that Paul is quick to point out this crown and reward was not just for him. Paul's not saying, hey, Timothy, I mean, I'm an apostle. I'm a pretty big deal, right? He's not saying that at all. He's not saying, hey, I did all this, of course. You know, don't get your hopes up, buddy. Um, No, he says this is for all who have loved the Lord's appearing. The same reward is not just for super Christians, so to speak. Paul would never call himself that in the first place. He wants Timothy to look for the same crown. That's implied here. He's saying, I want you to press on and do the work. The whole tenor of this whole passage has been, I'm finishing up my, my, my race. You now here, you, know, you do likewise. I'm looking for the crown. You do likewise. God, the Lord Jesus Christ, will give that to you even on the day of his appearing as well. It, the same promise holds true for every believer in Christ. And I think it's amazing that the way that Paul, Paul could have said, uh, not only to me, but also to every believer. That's not the way he describes believers here. He describes those who have believed in Christ, Christ as as all who have loved his, that's Christ's appearing. All of us who believe and who have loved the appearing of Christ, that that involves his first coming, his laying down his life on the cross for our salvation. It involves and looks forward to his second coming when he comes again in glory to judge the living and the dead. Let us look to the reward of his grace in all of our serving him. That is what Paul calls Timothy to do. It's what he calls us to do as well. If you're a believer, I hope that describes you as well. You are looking forward to and loved his appearing, Christ's appearing. And I'll close up with the the book of Hebrews in chapter 12 also speaks of the Christian life as a race, and it says this, Hebrews twelve, one and 2, it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, and I, I don't have my Greek in front of me, but it, chances are it's martyrs, uh, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which, which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the, the, the founder and perfecter, or the author and finisher, of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Amen. Let us do the same. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Christ, having loved his appearing, and even looking for the reward by his grace that is sure to come by his kindness. Amen.